This choir podcast is brought to you by the story of Christianity told as good news for all. I'm Rick Machuga, and I'm a Christian. When I was young, I thought there were two classes of people, those who were saved because they freely chose to believe, and those who were damned because they freely rejected God. In middle age, I still thought there were two classes of people, the saved and the damned. Only now, I thought in terms of God's sovereign right to do whatever he damn well pleased. Now I'm old, and I still believe there are two classes of people. First, there are those who are saved, and they already know it. Second, there are those who are saved. It's just that they don't yet know it. A few weeks ago in church, we sang about the reckless love of God. How it chases me down, fights till I'm found, saves the 99. This song, this chorus, perfectly sums up my little book, the story of Christianity told as good news for all. You can get it at Amazon today, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Steve Hackman, pastor and author, adventurer and pilgrim of the 500-mile Camino de Santiago in Spain and 1,100-mile Via Frangigena across Europe. And the best part of waking up is listening to Keith over a second cup. Hello and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles. And in this episode, I would like to talk about a specific book of the Bible that, um, I mean, there's a lot of books in the Bible that are very misunderstood. Um, Revelation, of course, is probably the most misunderstood book in the Bible, I would say. But... Romans is a close second, and I think it's because so many Christians um, kind of think they do understand Romans, uh, which makes it even more uh, confusing for them and more difficult for them to really understand uh, what they're reading when they read the book of Romans, because um, to them, it appears to be so straightforward, but it really isn't. And of course, this is one of the challenging things about trying to point out to Christians uh, that they are reading Romans the wrong way. So, you know, again, if if you think you already understand something, it's almost impossible for someone to teach you anything about that thing, uh, because in your mind, you already got it. You already have it figured out. So I want to, in this episode, if I can, try to explain why it is that I believe uh, so many Christians completely misunderstand the book of Romans. Um, I mean, Romans is a book that I know many, many Christians really deeply love. Uh, they really love Paul. To them, um, Romans is really uh, Paul's probably his his magnum opus, right? His greatest book would be the book of Romans to a lot of Christians because to them, um, you know, they they think that it's really a book about um, how much God doesn't like gay people. Uh, they think it's a book about how Christians uh, have a mandate to support uh, the government and the police state to join the military. Um, and uh, they believe it's all about how we're all wretched sinners and worms uh, who can do nothing to ever escape our sin nature. And of course, they also see Romans as the really the go-to place to figure out how to be saved. You know, the Romans road uh, is something that as a young man I was uh, taught to memorize and use. I, I put it in my Bible 
Um, it's even there now, the Bible I've been using since I was in college, uh, that has notes in the margins, you know, directing you through the book of Romans to, you know, first read this and then take them to this other passage and, you know, walk them through this Romans road, uh, series of verses to explain to them how they need to, uh, what they need to do to make sure that when they, if they die tonight, they'd be in heaven tomorrow. But I want to just let you know that, um, Romans is really not about any of those things. I mean, not at all. First of all, um, let's just kind of take them one at a time. Romans chapter one uh, is not a condemnation of gay people. It just really isn't. Um, and I, in fact, in fact, I invite people if they doubt me on that to really seriously do this. Just grab the book of Romans, <laughs> grab your New Testament, open it to the book of Romans, set aside some time, and just start at the beginning and read. Started Romans chapter one and, and read all the way through it. And what you'll notice if you do that, I believe you will, that, that most people are able, if they could really just follow the train of thought, make sure you follow what Paul is saying. And if you do that, what you'll recognize is Paul is not condemning homosexuality. Um, so what he does in the first chapter of Romans, uh, is first to set up the reader. Um, and that's really what he's doing. He he's kind of sets them up. He already knows that they have these poor opinions of pagans. And again, it's pagan idol worshipers that he is specifically um, pointing to here. Yes, he's talking about some of the practices that they use when they worship idols. And yes, for many of those pagan idol worshiping uh, Gentiles, the ways that they engaged in the, that idol worship did involve um, sexual intercourse, public sexual intercourse in, in their temples. So he does talk about that. But what many Christians are missing is that by starting out Romans, um, talking about something that he knows really uh, upsets Christian, his Christian audience, um, and, and draws out of them a very strong sense of condemnation against those sort of quote-unquote sinners, these detestable things that they do as they worship their false gods and, and these kinds of things. Uh, so he, he, he begins speaking about that. He's kind of wanting to draw out of them. Yes. The, 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 what's he knows as he's talking about this in chapter one, what, what is rising up in his audience is this indignation, this anger, this condemnation of these people. Look at these horrible things that they do, but then you can't miss what he does in the very next chapter. Um, so in chapter two, after sort of stoking the fires of condemnation, uh, and judgment in the hearts and minds of, of his Christian audience against these, you know, evil pagan idol worshipers who, who do these horrible things, the very next thing he says in Romans chapter two, starting in verse one is this, and you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you. 
to repentance? So you cannot miss that Romans chapter 1, even though it appears to be this um, very strong rebuke of these quote-unquote sinners, these pagan idol-worshiping sinners, and these detestable practices, the whole thing is written so that in chapter 2, verse 1, he can say, but hey, all of that condemnation and all that judgment you feel for those sinners, guess what? You are now passing judgment on yourself because you who condemn others and pass judgment on others are guilty of the same kinds of things. Maybe not the exact same things, right? But this idea, if you've broken some of the law, you've broken all of it. So all of us are quote-unquote guilty. All of us come under this judgment. Um, not We shouldn't come under judgment from one another. His point is that it's God's judgment. And so it's not our place to be the ones judging other people when we ourselves um, come under the exact same judgment from God. Now, the other thing, though, about specifically Romans chapter 1, too, is that if you even if you just isolate Romans chapter 1, which unfortunately most Christians will do, and read through it, um, what you'll notice, again, is it, it's not condemning specifically um, same-sex relationships. In other words, what we would call today um you know monogamous uh um mutually edifying same sex marriages or relationships where uh two people genuinely love one another and commit themselves to one another that that is not at all what paul condemns um what he's condemning is idol worship right um he he begins by saying uh, you know, that these people who do these things are doing so because this is what they do as they worship these uh, these gods, these idols that are not real, okay? And so because they have done these things in worshiping other gods, false gods, um, you know, that the, this is the reason why, this is what he's upset about, or now he knows that they're upset about, right? Um, and what I'd like to point out is that um, again, the if you do this, do this experiment. This if you're going to do this as I'm asking you to do, and you're looking at Romans chapter one, when you come to the parts where he's describing the sexual, um, the types of sexual acts that are being performed, okay, in in the worshiping of idols, what if the descriptions weren't same sex, um, you know, uh, actions? So read it. Read Romans chapter one, and when you come to those parts about you know the things that they do to worship their false gods, what if it was a man and a woman having sex in public? Do you think Paul would then be okay with it? Or you don't get that at all, right? You say, oh no, no, he's not upset at the specific kinds of sexual intercourse that are going on in the worship of idols. He's upset at the fact that any sort of public sexual intercourse is taking place. Number one. Number two, um, again, if it were, a, uh, if he did mention only same-sex intercourse that was taking place um, in order to worship a false pagan deity, would you and I assume that therefore God hates um, heterosexual sex? You know what I'm saying? So here you are reading Romans chapter 1. He's talking about how these pagan idol worshipers engage in these in these 
public displays of sexual intercourse to worship these false gods, and it's a man and a woman, heterosexuals, having public sex in the temple to worship, you know, Pan or uh, Diana or Zeus or whoever, would any of us conclude, therefore, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1 is that God hates it when men and women have sex? Of course we wouldn't. And that's my point. So just because Paul, what the kind, the specific kinds of sexual activity that is uh, undertaken in in worshiping these uh, pagan deities in the temples happens to be a same-sex intercourse, um, does not therefore mean that automatically God condemns that specific kind of sexual activity. In the same way, we wouldn't assume it if it was heterosexual. That's what I want us to notice. But again. The entire thing is, as I said, really intended to just be the setup for what he wants to drop on them in Romans chapter 2. That, hey, by the way, all of you who pass judgment on people doing these horrible things that I just described, um, you're actually condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment on these other people are guilty of breaking the law the same way they are. And we are all under God's judgment. That is the point he wants to make. That's really the only point he wants to make between Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. He's kind of setting everybody up by Romans chapter 1 for what he wants to communicate in Romans chapter 2. And the point he wants to make is don't judge other people for their behaviors and actions. It's not your place to do that. Um, One of the other things, as I said at the beginning, you know, a lot of Christians will use Romans um, chapter 13. Uh, to prove in their minds that how Christians are are basically mandated by Romans 13 to support the police state or the empire or the government uh, or or to be a part of the military and things like that. Um, what we need to understand, of course, is that Paul wrote Romans 13 and the whole book of Romans to Christians who at the time were suffering under a Hitler-esque uh, ruler, one of the most vile, evil rulers the world has ever known, a guy named Nero. And so if we keep this in mind and we understand the cultural historical context, we would understand that the last thing in the world Paul is doing in Romans 13 is telling these Christians under the oppressive, um, torturous reign of someone like Nero that God wants them to celebrate Nero and, hey, go join the Roman army and, and uh, you know, all hail the Roman Empire, right? Of course not. That is not at all what he wants to say. Um, I want to read a quote from my my friend Steve Scott, who talks about Romans 13, and he says this. He says, Romans 13 suffers from a poorly placed artificial chapter division that if read from thirteen chapter 13, verse 1, distorts the true meaning of the overall context flowing from chapter 12. The overall context is that if somebody commits evil against you, do not take revenge, but allow the civil authority to punish the evildoer. If you start reading in 13, chapter uh, 13, verse 1, it seems to create an authoritarian government that demands that we obey all of their laws. But taken in the overall context, chapter 13 is actually telling us that if we commit evil, then we should submit to the punishment given to us. 
It is far less about obeying the government and being loyal to it than it is about accepting justice when we are the ones doing the evil. Close quote. So the point is that Romans 13 is not about endorsing uh, specific, you know, just any general empire or government or authority as, as quote-unquote God's servants, regardless of any evil they may do. Uh, it's more about how we shouldn't rebel against the government authority in terms of wielding the sword and engaging in violence to overthrow them. Or it's not also not our place as the body of Christ to use a sword to punish people who do evil, right? Um, it's not about cheering on our nation when it goes to war against other nations or when it uses the sword in an unjust way. Uh, it's not about giving permission for Christians to join the state in their use of deadly force. Paul's statements in chapter 13 uh, are about the—he's he's addressing the role of the state— and he's not talking about the role of the church. If you want to know what Paul wants to say to the church and what he expects of the body of Christ, well, then you need to back up and read chapter 12. That tells us we should lay down our lives for one another, in love for one another. That's the instruction for the church. That's when you get to 13 that it becomes an instruction for the state and the role of the state. And when we mix these up, these are two separate realities, but if we mix them up, we really really missed the point of Romans 12 and 13. It is the state, it is the empire, it is the government that carries the sword. The church never carries the sword. The church carries a cross, and a cross only kills the one who carries it, right? Metaphorically, uh, we die. The, cro the cross is what crucifies our ego, uh, puts to death our ways of thinking, so that we can experience the resurrection of thinking in the ways that Christ does. Um, Romans, by the way, also, as I said at the beginning, Romans does not teach us that we are these helplessly evil, uh, creatures, you know? And so there's, of course, this, uh, famous or infamous passage, if you want to, however you want to look at it, where Paul says in Romans 7, 21, uh, this, so I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me for in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Now, if you just read that, that sounds like uh, an endorsement of the idea that we are helpless creatures who want to do good, but no matter what we do, we can't do good. And, uh, and end up, even though we want to do good, we end up doing evil, uh, and that we are wretched people uh, who can never be rescued, uh, from this sinful existence that we're in, right? Except, <laughs> uh, that if you just read the very, very next verse, uh, we don't stop there, but we keep reading. Then Paul answers his question. He just asked a question. He ended that with a question, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to the, to the power of death. He says this, Thanks be to God who rescues me through Jesus Christ. So most of the Roman epistle is written in something, and, I, and this leads me into the overall misunderstanding of the ways that Christians misunderstand the book of Romans. And here it is. It's because most Christians are completely oblivious to the fact that the majority of the Roman letter uh, the, the Paul's Roman, uh, letter to the Roman, Roman church in Rome, 
uh, is written in a style, a very specific argumentative style that was very popular in the first century uh, called prosopopoeia. Prosopopoeia. Uh, and what is that? Well, it's an argumentation writing style. Again, very popular uh, with philosophers and, and uh, theologians uh, of the time. And uh, it's a style of writing, an argumentative style of writing, where the author will pit one set of arguments against another opposing view in a sort of a back-and-forth virtual debate or dialogue, where the ultimate point is to prove one side wrong and establish the strength of, an, of another position that is better, that is more accurate. Okay. And so if you understand that, and it's so critical to understand this, guys, if you're going to really read Romans, if you want to understand this, you have to notice that there are all throughout the book of Romans, uh, there are two opposing viewpoints that Paul constantly juxtaposes with each, within, with each other. Okay. And very simply, they would be this. There are some state, statements in the book of Romans, the, the letter of Romans, where Paul is saying that God unconditionally loves the righteous um, and condemns sinners. Okay, so that's that message seems to be the only one that most Christians ever get out of Romans. God loves the righteous, but he condemns sinners. But the other message that is present in this back-and-forth argumentative debate within the book between these two voices is this other argument that said, where Paul also says this, that God shows mercy on everyone because God is better than we are. <laughs> and so Paul really begins, uh, the entire book really, is, is Paul building a case in this back-and-forth mock argumentation style between an imaginary, let's say a pharisaical voice, we might call that voice the voice of Saul, and and the other newly restored and redeemed Christian, Paul. Um, and by the way, that voice is what Paul really believes. And so um, that's what's going on in Romans. But if you don't notice that, you don't you don't pay attention to the fact that it is a back and forth conversation. And so let me, I'm going to try to give you some examples of this. Um, so let's see if we, see if we start, um, just going to scroll down here. Just a moment. That, um, okay, here we go. Here's an example. So um, let's read Romans starting in chapter three, uh, verse, starting in verse one of Romans chapter three. And I'm going to read, Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 1. I'm going to try to do it in a way, I'm going to read as I read through it, that you will notice these two different voices. Once you start to notice it, um, hopefully it's really easy to notice that this is not Paul just telling you, here's what I think about everything. That it really is this prosopopoeia, it is this back and forth conversation between two opposing voices. One of them Saul, the Pharisee, the teacher of the law, and the other one being the voice of the apostle Paul, who now sees things through the lens of Christ. Okay, so I'm going to see how I can do this in a way that you could, um, 
How am I going to do this? Oh, anyway, I'll just try to change my voice. <laughs> Hopefully that you can notice it. Uh, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined in misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Uh, hopefully you notice the difference in the, the at least the uh, the tone of the ways I read those different passages. But it's if you can see it, right, it's a conversation between two different voices. They're even asking each other questions and responding to each other. You know, I don't understand what you're saying. Are you saying this? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this. Well, but what about what the Bible says this? Yes, it says that, but it also says this. So it is a conversation going on between these two uh, characters. And again, if you get that, well, let me say it the other way. If you don't get that, then you will not understand what Romans is all about. If you, so here's what I see happening all the time. Anytime a Christian, um, certainly on Facebook, any kind of comment back and forth conversation about, um, typically about condemning, uh, people that are gay, condemning sinners, uh, the idea that, you know, no one is righteous, uh, the idea that we should support the, the military and the government, all those things. Um, it will, uh, Christians love to just say, but, but, you know, Paul says in Romans, and then they'll quote something. Okay. But what, what they don't understand is, okay, yes, Paul did write that in the book of Romans, but what you're quoting in that particular quote is actually the voice of Saul, the Pharisee. And if you keep reading this back and forth argument back and forth, and you recognize that it's a conversation and it's a debate, then you will actually read what Paul the Apostle really thinks about that. And you will keep reading and you'll see a contradiction of that idea, where Paul says, actually, that isn't true and here's why. Those are the parts that most of the times Christians completely miss. They just focus on the the voices that typically end up being the voices of uh, the Pharisee in, in the conversation, in the debate. 
and stopping right there and saying, aha, there you go. It says in the Bible, it says there in Romans, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, quote, and they're done. Because they miss that what's going on is this back and forth debate between this teacher of the law and the Apostle. And so uh, one of my favorite things, though, about this is if you can read Romans, starting in chapter 1, and you can start noticing this back-and-forth conversation, this prosopopoeia argumentation method, you will actually get to see the, the climax of the Apostle Paul's argument and where he wins the debate against the uh, pharisaical teacher of the law. Right, so it uh, it kind of starts to build up, kind of uh, you know Paul's building up his argument in Romans chapter nine, and um, as he's sort of wrapping up his debate with this uh, this Pharisee, this teacher of the law. Um, so it says Romans chapter nine, starting in verse twenty one: Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Okay, so what we need to understand, again, this is another one of those verses that Christians love to quote, right? Because to them, they think that what Paul is saying is that God did do this, that God has created vessels for uh, of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he has created a separate group of people who are vessels of uh, mercy and uh, for his riches and glory, right? But again, understand this is a debate, and this is a prosopopoeia, and that question, it, it's a question, it's a what-if question. It's I call it a Trojan horse question, okay? So Paul the Apostle wants to ask this question, but it's it's a loaded question. He's going to begin with this premise, this, uh, okay, you know, to the Pharisee, uh, the teacher of the law. Okay, I, I here's what you believe. I know this is what you think. You think that God has uh, this us and them sort of separation between certain types of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, so I, uh, so let's, let, let's, uh, let's say that. So what if God desired to show his wrath, um, you know, for, to, to create these vessels of wrath? that were, quote-unquote, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory. Uh, and then he also created a another group, uh, which was the, those who were vessels of mercy, right? So yes, what if? <laughs> He's not saying God did. He's saying, all right, uh, I know that's what you think, so if that's what you think, then let's just carry it forward. Let's just think this through. Does this make sense? Is this what God has done or not? Okay, and so Paul then begins to develop his argument, and all the way through chapter nine and ten, uh, he he continues to sort of work this out in this conversational style, um, and then when he gets to chapter eleven, he starts to answer a question that was asked all the way back at the very beginning of the epistle, and the question was this: Will all Israel be saved? Because really, that is one of the overarching sort of questions he wants to answer in this debate. What about this thing about where God said, God had promised that all Israel will be saved? Um, 
Is that true? And if it is true, how is it true? Because it appears that it's not being fulfilled at the moment, at least as Paul's writing this. It appears at the moment that Christians are these vessels of mercy and Jews are these vessels of wrath. But how can that be? Because the Jews are supposed to be Israel and Israel is supposed to be saved. And yet it seems that they're being condemned. So what's going on? How then can we say that God's promise that all Israel will be saved is true or that it could ever come to pass? So that is one of the overarching sort of umbrella arguments that is um, at the heart of this prosopopoeia debate between uh, Saul, the teacher of the law, and Paul, the apostle. And so here it comes uh, in uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 26. He begins to answer the question. And he says this, verse 26, chapter 11. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For God's bestowals of grace and vocation are not subject to a change of heart. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And then, everything has been leading up to this very next statement. This is it, guys. This is where Paul finally makes the ultimate point in the debate that he has been wanting to make from the very beginning. And here it is. Verse 32, for God has shut up everyone in obstinacy so that he might show mercy to everyone. Boom. That's why most Christians don't understand Romans. Because if you understand the back and forth debate between these two voices starting in chapter one of Romans, and you under you follow the back and forth argumentation between these two views, and then you come to the end of chapter 11, and you see Paul making his final point that here's how all Israel is going to be saved, because God has shut up everyone into disobedience so that he can show mercy to everyone. And that is his entire point. And now, just so you know, I'm not just making this up. (laughs) How do you know that Paul uh, has made this this amazing point that he's been trying to make this whole time. How do you know that that statement right there, that verse right there, that God has shut up everyone to disobedience so that he might show mercy to everyone, is the entire point he wants to make? Because the very next thing he does after that is do what he does, what I call a, a, a touchdown end zone dance. Right after he says God has shown uh, put everyone into disobedience. Has shown everyone. You know, how does he say it? God has shut up everyone in disobedience, so that He might show mercy to everyone. The very next thing He says is this: Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Yes. 
Paul does this beautiful victory dance in the end zone, does the mic drop and gives glory to God. Hallelujah. Isn't God amazing? Is God better than we even dreamed God could ever be? Yes, God is better, more loving, more merciful to anyone and everyone, whether they love him or not, whether they're obedient to him or not, whether they're they're disobedient or not. doesn't matter who they are, Jews, Gentiles, idol-worshiping pagans. It doesn't matter who they are. God has allowed everyone to undergo this disobedience so that he can show mercy to everyone. And then after making that beautiful point, Paul stops and becomes overwhelmed with joy that he has to just stop and say, God, you are wonderful. You are amazing. The depth of the riches and the wisdom of your knowledge is unsearchable, is unscrutable. No one has known your mind. No one could be your counselor. Who could ever plumb the depths of your goodness, your the riches of your grace and mercy? You are above all, beyond all, for from you and through you and to you are all things May all glory forever be yours. Amen. What is it that draws this spontaneous, uh, fantastic, spectacular expression of joy and just spontaneous thanksgiving out of the mouth of Paul the Apostle? It's simply this, that God has shut up everyone into disobedience so that he might show mercy to everyone. Isn't that amazing? And again, What a sad thing if Christians miss it. That's the entire point. That's what it's all about. So many of you guys know that I love uh, David Bentley Hardy. He's one of my favorite living uh, New Testament scholars. And in his New Testament, uh, he has a new translation of the New Testament, which I highly recommend. Um, There's a wonderful note Um under this section of Romans, and I want to read it or share it with you. He says, This is the conclusion to the question of Romans 9.14 above, which prompts the long, difficult series of reflections that ends here, and which is posed in its most troubling conditional form at chapter 9, verse 22. What if those who have erred or, or stumbled are merely vessels of wrath, whose only function is to provide a contrast to vessels of mercy? At Romans 11.11, however, Paul affirms that those not elected for service on the basis of divine foreknowledge, though they have stumbled, nevertheless will never fall. And at 11.12 and at 11.25, he affirms that the estrangement of the elect and, quote, those who stumble, close quote, is a temporary providential arrangement that allows the full totality of Jews and Gentiles alike to enter in. And here, finally, He affirms that there is then no actual distinction of vessels of wrath from vessels of mercy. Rather, all are bound in sin and all will receive mercy. So, my friends, if you don't understand all of these things that I just talked about, then you will completely miss everything that Paul is trying to communicate in the book of Romans. You'll miss all of this. You'll miss this back and forth argument. You'll miss those passages in Romans that are not the voice of Paul, but are the voice of the Pharisee. You'll miss the parts of it that are the the points Paul actually wants to emphasize. But let me tell you, once you do understand 
prosopopoeia. Once you can read Romans through this lens of prosopopoeia, you are in for quite a blessing. As you watch Paul and Saul go toe-to-toe and realize that only one of these debaters, only one of these teachers emerges from this ring, this battle, this debate, victorious. And the one that emerges victorious is the one who celebrates his victory uh, by by going into this uh, extravagant uh, celebration of the limitless, endless, beautiful mercy and love and kindness of God for everyone, everywhere, at all times. And that is what Romans is really all about. And I hope we can begin to revisit Romans, understand Romans again by seeing it through this lens that really illuminates everything, makes it all make sense. It's also, by the way, the reason why if you understand that Romans 11 ends with this uh, astounding revelation that all of us have sinned and therefore all of us have received this mercy of God and that in this way, all Israel and all Gentiles will be saved uh, through Christ. And then you understand this celebration, this amazing, extravagant, fabulous uh, declaration of the, you know, how amazing God is, right? At the end of Romans 11, that leads straight into Romans 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, what mercy? The mercy he just explained from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11. But again, this is part of the problem with breaking up the Bible into chapters and verses anyway. It sort of forces us to read it in this sort of artificial you know, break of ideas. Like, okay, uh, at the end of 11, that was the end of one thing, and 12 was the beginning of something else. No, we should read the end of 11 straight through into the beginning of 12, because they are connected. They are not separated ideas at all. At the end of this uh, Romans 11, after Paul makes this amazing point about how God has, um, you know, sees that all of us are disobedient and therefore shows mercy to all of us, and then has this amazing celebration of how amazing and incredible God's love is, the very next thing out of his mouth is, therefore, in view of God's mercy, how then should we live our lives? Well, we should submit ourselves to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is our true act of worship, living in a way that reflects the fact that we really get it. We really understand our incredible level of freedom and acceptance and love in Christ for everyone and anyone. And that is what compels us to love one another, forgive one another, serve one another. Why? Because it doesn't matter anymore. All these labels have disappeared. They mean nothing anymore. Jew, Gentile, Christian, non-Christian, uh, you know, it's it's a blue, it's meaningless. Because we now have this new reality of our oneness in Christ, our connection with one another, the reality that all of us are loved, all of us are accepted. We have all received this amazing, incredible mercy and love and salvation of Christ. And if we really get it, this is now how we should live, a new way of living, a new way of being and thinking that isn't this sort of dualistic us-them way of thinking that recognizes that we are all in Christ, Christ is in all of us, and we are one in Christ. We are one big, huge family of God. And that's beautiful. That's I love that. I think that's the that's the thing that I really wish that Christians would understand about Romans. It's not, um, it's unfortunately become a book uh, that Christians think uh, affirms all of their dualistic thinking. 
because they <laughs> they only hear the voice of of the Saul the Pharisee in Romans and they miss the point. Uh, they miss this back and forth debate that's going on, and therefore they miss the conclusion. They miss the celebration. They miss the uh, the refutation of all of those assumptions that they bring with them into the Book of Romans. And uh, I hope that this podcast can help you, my friends, see Romans this way, read Romans from this perspective, uh, because I believe this is exactly what it's all about. This is what we've been missing. Um, it's also one of the things where I think that maybe one of these days I'm going to write a book about uh, maybe how uh, just uh, helping people read through the scriptures um, and notice these kind of pitfalls, notice these kind of things that uh, most of us are kind of like blind spots, right? We, If we don't know it, if you don't see it, if no one shows it to you, then you if you don't notice it, you, you just go right over it, right? And you're not able to see these things. There are so many things like this. This whole thing about Romans I went through, prosopopoeia, and uh, what's happening in Romans 1, what going into Romans chapter 2, the whole thing about uh, you know how Romans is not a condemnation of people who are homosexual and things like that. Um, all of those things, like, it's really difficult. I mean, when you see, when you come to passages, and we'll probably eventually in upcoming uh, episodes, we'll, we'll visit some of the passages uh, where it, you know, the, it seems to be a condemning of women. Uh, it seems to be silencing of women, uh, things like that. Uh, you know, again, it's just too easy to open your Bible and say, well, the Bible clearly says, and quote some kind of scripture and say, you know, and just close the book and say, well, there you go. Uh, I've won the argument. I've proven the point. Well, most of the time, no, we haven't, because either that isn't what it says, or we haven't understood it. We haven't understood the historical context. We haven't understood this, uh, the argumentation devices that are used uh, in the in the writing and the communication of some of these things. There's just so much going on that we're oblivious to. And I hope, at least for now, that uh, this podcast can help us uh, to see with fresh eyes these kinds of things. It's certainly the Book of Romans, which I think, again, is, I think, one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible— but can be one of the most beautiful and liberating uh, texts in the scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, if we can see it through these fresh eyes. So thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Second Cup with Keith. Um, if you are uh, listening on the Ethos Radio app, thank you very much. If you're not, I would encourage you on your iPhone or on your Android, go to your app store, search the Ethos Radio app, download the app. And then you'll have access to uh, all the new episodes when they release of Second Cup with Keith and every other week uh, episodes of my, the Threads podcast where I interview different friends of mine about different uh, ideas in scripture and deconstruction and reconstruction and theology and things like that. Um, and by the way, you'll also get access to a handful of other uh, podcasts that are on the Ethos Radio app, as well as the Ethos Radio itself, which is actually a radio station, not a Christian radio station, but a radio station that plays just really good music and uh, and has some interesting little things, you know, thought-provoking ideas in between some of the songs for you to consider. It's something you could listen to in the car with your kids or, you know, as you're driving around town uh, or on your phone, you know, those kind of things. So uh, I encourage you to check out the Ethos Radio app. And if you are using the Ethos Radio app, uh, you can use a function on there to send me a voice message. And I would really appreciate that. Let me know what you think about the podcast. Give me ideas for upcoming episodes. I'd love to hear from you. And again, I just thank you for listening to Second Cup with Keith. Look forward to having another Second Cup with everyone again very, very soon. Take care.